Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, Don, and of course, I am joined by my two co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Hey, Don, what's going on? I guess I'm Jason today. Yeah, I'm Jason today. Anyang, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anthony. <laughs> Well, we have just come out of a pretty intense three-part series in regards to some TV uh, theme song brackets, and what we thought we would do today is go into uh, our old standard, our old staple when it comes to the episodes, just chatting about things that are affecting us, things that are going on. Just and we thought Exactly. And we thought we'd get into a little bit of video game talk, but of course, before we do that, let's go around the table here and uh, just chat about how things are going, what are we listening to, anything you wanted to share with our listeners. Um, I'll pop in first. So, um, yeah, by all means. I quite frequently like YouTube playlists of video game music, and I will sometimes go on like rabbit hole finds where I'll click on one thing and then it just like start off in the Mario 2 uh, soundtrack, and then it flips over to another one. And so I found this playlist called uh, Nintendo Music to Calm You Down, mm-hmm. and it's got, like, Animal Crossing, Breath of the Wild, Super Mario Galaxy 2, Chrono Trigger, uh, which I think... We will gonna, get into yeah, Chrono Trigger today. Yeah, you're talk about that. So it was just this, all the soft, lulling menu music compiled in one playlist that is a jam. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I like to play use it when I'm working. It's... Nice background music, but that's, that's definitely cool. been my like my main listening right there this week. I'm one of those individuals who will throw on one of those 10-hour compilations of like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild songs, mm-hmm. but with like soft um, crickets and nighttime effects oh, sure. in the background. And yes. I'll throw that on and I'll mm-hmm. be working away with just stuff like that. And you'll just hear kind of the plinking of the piano or... Like, at least it's none of the intense music, like when the Octoroks kind of wake up and start zapping Link <laughs> as he's running around Hyrule Field there. But I'm completely with you when it comes to enjoying the Nintendo music when you just need something to veg out to or throw it on while you're working. Yeah, and I find some of the playlists have ridiculously specific situations. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're in a lecture hall and it's being studied. Uh, you're studying in a lecture hall and it's being haunted by a ghost at 1138 at night. Or one of the other ones I found was uh, you're in an old house and it's raining and there's old timey music playing in the next room. <laughs> and you're like, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> like, you're, yeah. it sounds like you're in an old timey house and listening to old music and there's rain outside. I was going to say either that or you're stuck in a, a fallout. The video yeah. game oh, very good call. <laughs> Get your music playing through your Pip-Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason, what about yourself? What's going on with you? So for me, I, I'm a little ashamed because I don't have any cool video game stories to share. But I will say that I have been um, very much in one of my jazz uh, wormholes, rabbit holes, uh, as of lately. I was uh, telling you, Don, I think earlier that I had no idea how prolific uh herbie hancock was like i mean i know he's awesome that's not at question but i had no idea how many albums he actually produced so you know as my collection of him is starting to grow i'm realizing i'm maybe only a quarter of the way through what he actually has on tap to offer i'm still waiting on my copy of sunlight which is frustrating and i probably will have legends coming in the not too distant future but yeah like i've i think i grabbed his very first uh record and then like his playing on uh charlie birds like one of his earlier rec and then like you know you guys are definitely wearing on me because like now i'm more sort of like oh 
So he's been, you know, he was playing on these other people for a while, like before he actually did his own thing. And then like, you know, sort of piecing together the story and the chronology of uh, how this all sort of went down. It's like, it's really fascinating. And then like even hearing him talk about what uh, Miles was telling him, like when he first started playing and sort of like stuff like that. It's been really fascinating. So I've been, I would say between him, Bird to a lesser extent, and maybe Sonny Rollins, I've still been kind of in rabbit holes with all of them. Very nice. That's so much fun, especially the whole discovery of an artist's backstory and the context of what they were doing at that time mm-hmm. and the crossovers. That sounds like a fun musical journey. It's been pretty awesome. Nice. So, you know, no, no video. Unfortunately, no video game that I'm aware of has had the wisdom to incorporate jazz into it in that way. But mm. if it happens, man, I'm all over it. So for myself, I would say that one of the things that I can kind of share uh, similar to what Anthony was talking about is I've listened to a lot of music just focusing in on uh, while I'm doing work. And one of my favorite things to listen to when it comes to uh, work and just putting stuff on in the background and just kind of have some nice white noise is there's this really great playlist by uh, Stephen Thompson, and he is with NPR Radio in the States. And he talked about this playlist that he put up on Spotify, and it's songs to edit to. And one of the discs on that playlist list is uh, by brian mcbride and it is called the effective disconnect and it's actually a soundtrack for a documentary called vanishing of the bees and it takes a look at colony collapse disorder and how bee colonies are being decimated across the u.s and across the world and he created this amazing instrumental soundtrack for this documentary and it is just the music that i can throw on in the background and completely zone out focus in on what i'm doing but it's still it's almost like that sort of soundtrack in my head as i'm doing the most mundane things and it's beautiful music and obviously the subject matter of the documentary is pretty heavy uh, but the music really i think it has that emotional impact but it also has that ability to just kind of wash over and do what movie music is expected to do kind of wash in the background and almost be there silently or or unknowingly and i i've been listening to that a lot and the yeah, brian mcbride's uh the effective disconnect has been a huge help to me so sounds like we've all had a pretty decent week And I think that kind of leads us nicely into chatting about what we've come together to really talk about, which is the uh, video games. The video games. Video games in general. The video games. Mm -hmm. Find us on the Facebook and the Twitter. (laughs) And all the internets. decided to do to kick off today's uh, chat about video games and we had alluded to this in our very first episode when we were talking about getting to know us as hosts and video games came up in all of our conversations Jason you talked about Animal Crossing Anthony you mentioned Mega Man 2 which I know you're going to go a little bit into today and I believe I talked about Final Fantasy 6 for the Super Nintendo 
And we're going to go a little bit more in depth into how video games have affected us for essentially all of our adult lives, uh, as well as our, our adolescence. Jason had a great idea. What we thought we'd do to kick off is to talk about our video game origin stories and just see how video games have impacted us over the years. And I think I'll kick off just to make it easier for the group here. So I was a day one Nintendo kid. Uh, I was fortunate enough at, I believe, the age of seven. My parents uh, randomly bought uh, my sister and I a Nintendo Entertainment System, and we had Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers. I believe we also had Track and Field uh, with the, uh, the Power Pad. I was fortunate enough to move on to the SNES, and I think I had every subsequent... Nintendo console up until the Switch, save for a few here and there. I did not own a Wii, oddly enough, of one of their biggest sellers. I did not have that. It was just in a time when I was switching over to advanced generation consoles. I was a Xbox 360 guy when I was over in Japan, thanks to my buddy Andrew. And I talk about one of those games in this episode here, but I was fortunate enough to be very Nintendo all throughout my my youth and into my teenage years, into my young adulthood, and I still am today. Uh, that has been my video game history and I'm going to throw it over to Jason. Jason, how about you tell us about your video game origin story? So I had a friend that like stayed down the way, like that I would kind of like sneak to his house after school and like play Nintendo because like I knew that he had one and he had the, the duck hunt and gun and, you know, he was just sort of like all, all the way set up, you know, so that kind of, that's, I think my first introduction to Nintendo before that, I mean, my well you know what i'll go back a little further my very first introduction to nintendo i think is probably the game and watch series of like those little games so like the mario there was like a donkey kong one there was like a handful of those and so those were kind of like my first nintendo games i you know i mean i guess if just trying to point out what the actual beginning is but then you know sort of flash forward i was uh in junior high in this opportunity for like this fundraiser to get many things but the second to the best prize being an nes and man i like i slung so many domino's pizzas that i probably am responsible for all sorts of health issues uh many years later that i'm just now uh sort of coming to grips with myself but all that to say that I did what I needed to do and I got that Nintendo and so that kind of opened up a whole new world of me using the RF connection because you know that was a thing back then and it couldn't have been much bigger than like a 20 inch maybe TV like or smaller like it, it was like one of those little like TVs with like the two rotary uh, knobs yeah. and the rabbit ears or whatever like that's what I was playing on but it was like everything back then and then after that, kind of nothing for a while until just about before I went away for uh, school because, like, uh, you know, I think I got an opportunity to get, like, a Game Boy Color. I didn't have, like, I had friends with, ga like, the actual old school Game Boy, but, like, I think Game Boy Color was, like, the first thing I could get my hands on. Um, and then, you know, Pokemon sort of started out this, like, big issue of gaming love. In any event, that sort of kicked off something. And then right around that time is like when I got a Nintendo 64. So I skipped over the whole SNES thing, which is unfortunate because there were some amazing games that I just never really had access to. From there on, it kind of, it just sort of snowballed because then, you know, I actually started to get a little bit of money because of jobs and things. Uh, had a, a GameCube, which, 
I'm going to talk a, a bit about because I think some of my biggest gaming memories come from that initially. And then like, you know, the, the Wii and Wii U, Switch and, you know, some other consoles along the way. But like, I'm a heavy Nintendo boy. So that's, I, I think I would be inauthentic if I didn't talk about anything about other than Nintendo in this space, at least for now. Yes. I mean, for now, I mean, we we, we could talk hours and hours and hours about video games and go in depth on one specific game but yeah i think that's a perfect start anthony give us your origin story my origin stories for video games starts in a campground when i was younger my family and i would go camping a lot there's specifically some koas and near marmara and one of my first memories of video games was a big arcade in a barn uh, at this campsite. I couldn't tell you where, but I just have a distinct memory of going in there, and it was an old barn that had been, been converted, and they had clearly just shoved some arcades in there, and there was everything, and I was just, I my eyes just lit up, and I was like, this is the greatest space ever. And about two years later, I remember my cousins got the Nintendo Entertainment System. And we all flocked to the TV. I remember even at the time there was urban legends about this NES on your TV and you couldn't leave it hooked up to your TV for too long because it would ruin it. And it was just these weird cultural moments of how much the NES really became part of daily life. Um, And that first encounter at my cousin's was with the game Mega Man 2. My heart just leapt out of my chest and these 8-bit graphics and the sounds spoke to me and I would go out on the limb and say Mega Man 2 is probably my favorite video game of all time. Uh, And it's usually hard for me to kind of like pinpoint stuff, but yeah, I feel like that's one game that just has a special place in my heart. It takes what made the first one so successful and builds upon it. And that to me is the essence of a good sequel with a video game, television show a movie whatever it is sequels i think actually have a lot of power um and so i really latched on to mega man 2 but soon after that we got super mario brothers 2 and i played the shit out of that game uh, and half of it was because of the music it's so iconic and it was really interesting what they did and then Zelda 2 was a bit of an uh, interesting point for me is that I never owned any Zelda games. The concept of them, when I would watch other people play them, it was very difficult for me to be like, I don't want to play this game. It seems too hard. (laughs) But I loved the music. So I remember, I don't even know whose house I was at, but I remember seeing somebody play Zelda 2, The Adventures of Link. And I was just, I loved the music and I loved the graphics, but I remember just being so intimidated by it. For whatever reason, I guess they seemed really hard to me, and I never played them. Uh, But it was very similar in the sense that as I got older, I was afraid of punk rock music and rock music. And I remember at one point my cousin got me tickets to Weezer, and it was a concert. And I couldn't go, or I chose not to go because I was too afraid of mosh pits. So... To not veer off too much from my video game (laughs) origin stories, I really loved sequel video games. And then I took a bit of a break until I didn't have a SNES. And then I had a Nintendo 64, which I bought myself after working at my Zeller's job in high school. And I was very proud of that. And that's when I became a Zelda player. It's because Ocarina of Time 
really allowed me to understand the logistics of the game that I never really had done before. I've since been able to go back to Zelda and Zelda 2 and all the earlier incarnations, and I play them, and I understand how to play them. So it was just a skill level. But yeah, I like got into Arcarina of Time and Zelda really a lot. And then I went away to university, and I didn't have any video games until uh, a Wii. Uh, I bought the Nintendo Wii, but it was like the three or four year later version where there was no internet, very basic, um, but I loved it. I like absolutely loved it and I still have it. And then now I'm in the process of debating whether I want a Switch Mario 35 or if I want a 4K Switch coming out later. I'm at this point where I want to treat myself to a Switch and I'm not sure which one to get, but yeah, I'm a Nintendo kid just like you guys. Something about Nintendo just sparks me in a different way. And I like the color. I like the cartoony. I love the creative nature of it. I love the properties in Nintendo. Looking at Zelda 2 can completely intimidate a kid. I mean, when you're going from something as simple as it is one button to jump and you hold another to run fast and you just hold right and you go to now you have all these spells and different items and a whole new map and it's a completely different map system from the first Zelda and I don't think I have officially completed Zelda 2 on the NES. I've believe i've completed it through roms with like save points and all that but yeah it's yeah. an unbelievably oh. difficult game yeah so actually th this makes me feel a little bit better because maybe i actually got a complex from zelda 2 is that when i played it when i was younger and i was just like i have no idea how to do this but it was it's a hard very game. confusing it yeah. is and so again even the like the way in which the game moves i'm used to the side scroll and then all of a sudden this was like up down over yeah. right over and you're a map that i can't remember Anyway, I've since learned how to love Zelda, but it really did take a lot of time and effort. But I will say that the Zelda 2 soundtrack is quite special. It's very nice. It's very, it's a good continuation of the first Zelda soundtrack. Agreed. It had a little bit more power behind it, had a completely different design. The music takes some common motifs that we're all used to and completely elevates it. So yeah, very, yeah. very fun. I kind of forgot about the the world the, of like you know upright arcades and like mm. you know how many quarters I dumped into that. So that's kind of relevant to one of my choices a little later on. But yeah, that that's a whole another thing I kind of glossed over because that was a big part of my. I'm, obviously, I never had an arcade. Definitely not in my house or anything like that. But you know, definitely a lot of exposure to video games before I actually could have one myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that definitely for me is a big part of it. Like. I remember not having a uh, Nintendo until, I want to say, like, 1990, maybe 89. So it would have been out for, like, four or five years, I think, before I was even able to get one. Because uh, it just happened to coincide with, like, how my family was moving and where we were financially at that time. Mm -hmm. So arcades were a big part of my video game experience growing up. So when I was going camping or, you know, when we go to Wonderland, there was always a lot of arcades and we'd play games there. And so I definitely sought out a lot of video game interactions through those stand-up first. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I even got a home entertainment system that... We really, we were not careful with it. I know it's like, Don, it sounds like you're very, oh yeah, it's very nice. And <laughs> it's very packaged and it's very put away downstairs. And I was like, do you know how many times I ripped off the cover case accidentally just because we weren't paying attention? We'd be like, whoop. And I was like, oh shit, how do you get that back on? 
Like, these yeah. things happen. Yeah, it's we... not my original Nintendo downstairs. It ah. is da- absolutely one I, I purchased right, later on in life. <laughs> I think I still have some of the boxes, though, of some of my games, like, tucked away somewhere in my parents' house because oh, I just, I, I liked the artwork. I liked what was uh, the instruction manuals. I think one of the, the best ones, the Pride, that's still somewhere within my collection is my Earthbound box. Which Earthbound for Super Nintendo, for those who don't know, it has become this huge collector's item. And it came in this big box. So you think about the typical like box for video games back in the NES, SNES days. We're thinking like something about yay size, maybe five inches by four inches. And uh, Super Nintendo boxes were more kind of rectangular, but on the, the vertical or the horizontal versus the vertical. And then Earthbound came in a box that was like the full size of a uh, strategy guide. And it was huge huge Hmm. and nowadays it's become this huge collector's item like a complete inbox earthbound will go for a grand i don't have the cartridge i don't have the the strategy guide in really great condition anymore uh the scratch and sniff snickers stickers that came with the the game they're no longer that sounds it's crazy and but i have the box the box is somewhere and i will eventually when i'm able to get back home and acquire all the stuff that we all stash in parents basements sure i will grab that stuff and uh, hopefully be able to display that earthbound box Oh, I think this was good. This is, it definitely triggered a lot of memories. Uh, I think really good discussion in regards to our, our origins. We are all Nintendo kids here from the sounds of it. So I think that will definitely be reflected in our list, but I think now would be the time for us to, to get into it. Let's go ahead and talk about the things that we wanted to bring to the table. I think I'm going to kick off and I'm going to start with something that uh, it sounds like was completely missed by both of you not having Super Nintendos. And that is, uh, for me, the first thing when I think about our podcast and I think about video game music, it I have to jump to Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger is a 1995 Super Nintendo video game and it is a Japanese style role playing game or JRPG and it is amazing. For anybody who knows, or anybody who got into RPGs from the Super Nintendo era, we have things like um, Squaresoft or now Square Enix producing just unbelievable games. They had the Final Fantasy series. They had 4, 5, and 6 for the Super Nintendo. They had Chrono Trigger. They had tons of other properties that they could migrate over. But I selected Chrono Trigger specifically because I think it is a little bit out there in comparison to what Final Fantasy was doing. Final Fantasy was doing still your classic sort of big, grandiose, orchestrated, very sort of fantasy, steampunky a little bit role-playing, whereas Chrono Trigger did things a little bit differently. They were set in kind of smaller villages. Then you start to migrate through time, and that's where the composer, who is Yasunori Misuda, who was really took a look at the game and wanted to do crazy different things with the soundtrack he had been a part of uh, squaresoft had been really frustrated with his job and he was offered the opportunity to score chrono trigger uh, because he wanted to to do something to advance his career and to make more money and he really wanted to take a look at the chrono trigger soundtrack and do things completely different from what had been done prior and i think he accomplished that to the point where he wanted to do things so differently that he made himself unbelievably sick he would sleep in his office he lost almost all of his work when his pc crashed and he gave himself ulcers because he was so stressed about the soundtrack that 
when he got to that point, he had done more music than had ever been done in a uh, in a video game to that point. And also, we have to keep in mind that usually the video game music composers are also doing the sound effects as well for these video games. So there's kind of double duty of having to do not only the music, but also all of the, the different sounds because you have to create everything from scratch. And by the time that he got really sick and he had to be taken off the project for a period of time, that's when Squaresoft brought in Nobu Uematsu, who is kind of their legend when it comes to uh, composing. When we talk about Final Fantasy VI, and I mentioned that in the first episode, he is the composer there. And in addition to um, Uematsu, uh, Noriko Matsueda came in as well. She was fairly new to Squaresoft at the time and composing in video games, but came in to support Matsuda due to the situation that he was in because of his illness and the difficulties he was having with Chrono Trigger. But when I think about that soundtrack, there are so many amazing cues and he had the luxury of doing things completely different because he was flowing through time. It's unbelievable what he was really able to do with the, the soundtrack. And I think it's more subtle and more peaceful than some of the other things that I had heard up to that point in regards to video game soundtracks, specifically RPGs. I think about when you jump back to 680, there's this beautiful piano tune and it's just so subtle and haunting and it really kind of relaxes you and makes you realize this is a completely different time and he really utilized music to its full effect in building the presence of the surroundings that you're in setting a place outside of all the other locations that you're going to go and visit and he did it in such a like a quiet way like yes when you jump back in time and you go to the dinosaur times there's like bongo drums and it's kind of more primitive and more rocking you go into the the future and um because it's kind of decimated by the the coming of lavos and the apocalypse it's kind of haunting and ghostly and, and airy but i think just what he is able to do is unbelievable and i really do appreciate what he was able to to provide and it's still something that i can listen to today and and zone out to. One of the other things I'd like to highlight when it comes to the Chrono Trigger soundtrack is that Mitsuda wanted to do something so different with the score. And what he did, in addition to releasing the Chrono Trigger soundtrack and all three albums of it, is that he also did a acid jazz rendition of 10 of the tracks from the soundtrack. And it was released simultaneously as when the game and the, the soundtrack were released. And it's so weird and out there that the cover of a acid jazz um, rendition of 10 tracks off the soundtrack that covers just a plate of breakfast food. There are two fried eggs, a thing of bacon, and some orange juice, and that is the cover of the album. And he really takes a weird spin on some of the tracks and gets really funky with it. And I really appreciate just how he really wanted to do things completely differently for the time. And I can only sing its praise uh, of how influential and how impactful that soundtrack was in the history of me listening to soundtracks. And I think for a lot of individuals, uh, Chrono Trigger is one of those greats and it has continually been remembered since 95. I mean, here we are, what, um, 
almost 30 years later and we're still talking about it and it's still coming up and still holding against all of these other more established and and probably better executed and arranged soundtracks to the state so i think chrono trigger is definitely one of those things that i can put up there as one of my favorites and will be for quite some time beginning of a new and excitingly different story yeah i have zero connection to the chrono trigger i don't remember as a game have no interest like had no idea of it before this but when i was listening to that nintendo music to calm me down some of the chrono trigger music was in it and it is hella relaxing and good i really enjoyed it it was Interesting. I I love RPGs, but yeah, no connection to it at all, but good choice on the music. I don't have a strong connection to it. I was aware of it. I mean, I think especially as I got into uh, RPGs a little later on, I was aware of sort of how significant Chrono Trigger was to sort of the, the genre in general, but I still never played it. So I guess I'll definitely have to rectify that just to become aware of the theme music for the different time periods as you're you're describing here but man first of all props for killing at least to my uh american ears killing all those uh japanese names because like you said it like you've always said them like geez well okay i i'm gonna say a few later on and i hope i get them right but you sounded confident so props for that Thank you. I've said Nobu Umatsu's name for much of my life. Like, I, as I said, like the Final Fantasy has been such a part of my listening. And Chrono Trigger, yeah, definitely one of those things that I could constantly listen to and and still do. Like, it, it, Anthony, it's still coming up on those playlists. It's yeah. still those things that you can plug in and it still holds up really well. And I think the beauty of the RPG genre is that you have opportunities to have downtime. It's not just all has to be fast, has to be action oriented. You have some periods of time where you're just wandering around a map and you need some some quieter music. You evoke a certain feeling when you're in that location. So you have that opportunity to play with the music that's around you. And it doesn't always have to be the battle themes, which obviously are more intense and upbeat and, and really fun and enjoyable. But I think there's some great ways to play with the music if you are an rpg composer jason let's go ahead and jump over to you and let's take a look at your first selection here on the list so kind of tying back to that whole arcade conversation i guess it was about the same time that the turtles arcade i what is it turtles in time or turtles in mm -hmm. time for sure um was like you know available like the local coin op but obviously nothing like that was going to be available on any console for some time afterwards so the teenage mutant ninja turtles video game was kind of like the next best thing and part of what made that pretty cool to me was the music i mean just sort of that you know like as you're sort of like trying to figure out where to go was I won't say it was soothing. It wasn't soothing, but it wasn't sort of startling either. It was just sort of like, okay, this is chill. I'm, you know, like, I got to figure out where to go next. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in the overworld just trying to figure out where to move to next. So that was cool. That was pleasant. Then, like, you know, the different sewer sort of spaces or, like, building spaces, you know, they would build 
up to the boss battles that came up, whether it was, you know, like very early on with uh, Bebop and Rocksteady or like some of the others. And I don't know, for me, again, not being the huge video game music appreciator at that time, I just, I appreciated how much it lent itself to what I was doing. And like, it sort of, you know, even, I don't think, yeah, it didn't change with like who, which uh, character you had on the stage or anything. But I don't know, as you're sort of like going through menu, because it, it was kind of like heavily menu based in terms of like shifting between like, you know, the turtles and then going back to the main stage and just like the way the music changed up between those things. It just, I don't know, it was a really cool vibe. just like one of those uh, not to overuse the wor- uh, word iconic but it really was um and it's something that's memorable it, even gosh like 30 some years later uh as we're talking about it now i will attempt to say who i think has credit for um doing at least a good part of the music for that video game june uh, funahashi i guess but again i'm not 100 percent confident that i'm saying that correctly Apparently, you know, I mean, he's got a lot of uh, Nintendo and Super Nintendo and PlayStation and Xbox games to his credit. Um, So he's pretty prolific when it comes to that. But not knowing all of those games or even having access, because like, you know, even in college, like I don't think I saw PlayStation 1 for like a while afterwards, because like my roommates had a PlayStation 2. I had a GameCube. That's kind of what we did. But, like, you know, he's got a lot of stuff to his credit, and I don't think I've played most of it, but I definitely appreciate him for what he did for that game and just making it such a a memorable experience. My favorite part from TMNT on the NES was when you first jump into a manhole, and it really, it sets the table with that, and then it just goes into the level theme. So it's almost kind of like that battle transition that you get in a in an RPG or like with Pokemon, like it, the screen flashes and it's and you get into it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the same sort of situation with the beginning of that track, even though it's not kind of its own little segment. It's just you go into the manhole and then it kicks off. So I I can really appreciate what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was trying to do there. To me, I guess, you know, maybe the the, the very end, like, you know, when you're sort of like you're battling uh, against, uh, what was that vehicle that, um, I guess, is it a Dome? Like, whatever that big spear that you, like, battle before you actually get to Shredder. And just sort of, like, that moment uh, with the music, it's all pretty epic. It's all pretty, like, there's a whole lot of tension. There's a whole lot of, like, please let me figure out the right spot to stand so I don't get, like, you know, all my guys, like, taken out. And, you know, hopefully I can keep Donatello healthy enough so I don't have to get too close to this thing donatello was clutch man (laughs) but all that to say that yeah that that game really did have an impression on me and sonically too uh it's just there was nothing about it that jumped out at me as annoying which you know i think especially in the the very early era of games that could be a thing right because i mean the it's not like a very developed music but the fact that they managed to get that right at a a pretty early point in the technology is uh, i think amazing to me Anthony, let's drift down to you. What's uh, one of your selections here off your list? I'm going to start off by saying that 
I really am intrigued that all of my choices come from the year 1988. That they uh, all were released that year. I probably had connection with them between 1988 and 1990. And again, I'm going to start with Mega Man 2. Mega Man 2 is a really interesting game because... From what I understand the stories of it, Mega Man, the first Mega Man wasn't very popular. It didn't sell a whole bunch. It was there. It existed. Uh, known as Rock Man uh, in Japan and really just existed at that time, but doesn't really wasn't a huge seller. And a lot of the material that went unused or wasn't ready for Mega Man just got moved over to Mega Man 2. And so a lot of the leftovers or things that weren't included in the first game got brought to the sequel. And one of the biggest things I think that it does better than the first one is the soundtrack. It just is interesting to me that 8-bit music is a bit of a challenge because you only have eight notes to play with. So right off the bat, I like a little bit of difficulty level increase. <laughs> and this is the beginning of video games. So it was already probably difficult enough to be doing the programming, but to kind of come up with original compositions with only eight notes and not have it be repetitive, not have it be annoying, and have individual narratives for each of those songs, I think is an incredibly challenging project. And all of these composers only had a limited amount of notes to work with, and I love each one individually so much. So I really got to give credit to you know, these composers. I think it's fascinating what they've done and what they've given us. And Takashi uh, Tatishi who made Mega Man 2's soundtrack, hasn't really done a lot, but I think that was his golden nugget. Like, that is often cited, uh, Mega Man 2 is often cited as one of the best soundtracks of all time. So I have a lot of respect for him, and I have a lot of respect for the game, and it's honestly something I just keep coming back to as one album. It's really weird. I I don't see it necessarily as individual pieces anymore. I really do see, you know, it's I think there's a YouTube upload video of it and it's 24 minutes. So even then, you know, there's not a lot of length. It's all short, very short clips that are on repeat. And I think we've talked about this a lot about that is a really fine line to uh, walk, to be able to repeat things without it being annoying. And yeah, Mega Man 2 is just so fascinating. You have like all these levels of each one having their own individual theme. But for me, the main banger in the whole thing is Dr. Wily's Stage 1. <laughs> I guess uh, I'm going to mention, because, you know, Don, you had mentioned listening to some soundtracks that were bootlegged. Mega Man 2 has a bit of a very controversial history in the bootleg vinyl department. It's actually one of the more rare records. I don't know. Are you guys familiar with a lot of the bootleg vinyl video game that's going on right now? I previously asked in the first episode. No, it's, it's only recently that I've kind of understood about bootlegs more generally, much less how that affects sort of the video game soundtrack space. It, it, like, it really is fascinating. Uh, again, I uh, like, I'm not going to go too much into it here, but the Mega Man 2 soundtrack pressed on vinyl can go anywhere between five to $1,000. What? And that's a bootleg. Wow. And that's just one. Uh, there's the Zelda, original Zelda soundtrack will go between $1,000 and $2,000. 
for a bootleg record. It's wow. bonkers. And it's this is a really interesting space that's only come up in the last four to five years. So uh, that's why I say it's a, uh, I'll just put a little pin in it to be like, I really do think we should come back to this topic because video games on vinyl specifically have gotten to a place now where a lot of weird things are happening and a lot of soundtracks are being produced, but half of them, I would argue, are probably done illegally. That's my discussion point about Mega Man 2. I'm going to say it now. I am not done talking about that soundtrack in future episodes, I should say. I'm probably going to cut back to it multiple times. So, Can we talk about it just a wee bit more just because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. now I'm kind of fascinated. How do you bootleg a video game soundtrack? Well, there are several ways, but essentially what people are doing is taking the electronic electronic files that they find online, usually the cleanest copies that they can get a hold of, so it's not the original tracks whatsoever, then through independent record producers, you essentially line up what the pressing is going to be, add the audio file, and they press it, and then a lot of them will make their own artwork. And so it's usually a labor of love. It's a labor of illegal love. (laughs) But pressing your own vinyl is very accessible right now. So there is a huge underbelly going on and... It's, I think it's kind of peaked and kind of gone down now. But now what I'm seeing is these value of all these bootlegs are bonkers. I just, like, and I'll admit it, I have several of them. <laughs> um, I bought several of them knowing they were bootlegs, so shame me if you will. But in the last year, one of them has, like, doubled in the value. And that's not why I have it. <laughs> I actually really just want the pressing on vinyl. But now the drive for it is causing an underground black market. And it's, I don't know, I find it really fascinating. You know, to the extent that I understand bootlegging, I sort of envisioned, you know, somebody sitting there with like, at a concert with sort of like some portable recording equipment. (laughs) And, you know, obviously that's, that's their source for making additional records. It's a little harder to conceptualize, you know, somebody taking a, uh, that element from, you know, the game itself and sort of extracting it into a, a format that lends itself to being pressed again, but that's definitely fascinating to me. Soundtracks are a weird beast. We've just gone through our first video game soundtrack selection, and before we get to our next set, we wanted to take a break and tell you about another great podcast you should be listening to. We here at Even the Score realized that a bi-weekly show was for us, but for Chicago Tony V, he's on the podcast grind every single weekday. Join the army of Tony's Pepperonis and listen to the Chicago Tony B Show. He's talking about everything from the Krispy Kreme COVID vaccine donut deal to how William Shatner provided the greatest villain performance ever. You can find the Chicago Tony B Show anywhere you get your podcast or watch his show via his YouTube channel. Just search for Chicago Tony V, all one word, on YouTube. The man's got himself a killer hat. Definitely tune in and take a look. Subscribe to the Chicago Tony B podcast and follow him on Twitter at Chicago Tony. Tell him even the score sent you. Now, let's get back to the video game soundtrack discussion. Jason, let's go back into your list, and how about you provide us another one of your video game selections? 
So the next one I think that was on my list that I wanted to to talk about, moving kind of forward a lot in Nintendo speak to the GameCube, was Tales of Symphonia. Unlike your experience with, you know, Chrono Trigger, I think Tales, for me, as best as I can remember, is my first real experience with uh, RPGs. And it's kind of special in a way because they're really, you know, the, the Tales series, Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest... They're all unique in their own way, and I mean, to let a lot of people tell it, they're kind of like the holy trinity of RPGs as far as that goes. But the thing about Tales that I think makes it pretty different from the other two is that, as far as I could tell, it's the one that sort of introduced motion and sort of like real-timey aspects into the RPG. All that to say that this isn't really about the, the gameplay here, it's about the music behind it. So there is a lot of just very soothing music for a lot of the overworld experience. I mean, it's it's just sort of a peaceful, tranquil game most of the time because it's like, I don't know if it's necessarily a device that the game uses to like lull you into a, a fake sense of security. But when you're grinding it out, I mean, like the music is, you know, it's pretty repetitive. It's pretty soothing, but it also uses music in a pretty dramatic way often. Anybody who's played Tales of Symphonia knows it's a pretty long game and there there are lots of story twists and unexpected character, you know, like changes, like somebody who is your friend is now your enemy and vice versa. And for all those moments, the music very much follows what is happening. There's some real tearjerker moments in Tales of Symphonia and man, the music is spot on when it's there. There's some, you know, like happy reunitings. The the music follows suit. And I don't I don't necessarily know the tracks because again, to what we were talking about before, I'm not aware of there being like a separate soundtrack that was produced for Tales of Symphonia, but man, the the music is just really it's great when it needs to be great. It's dramatic when it needs to be dramatic. It's painful and mournful when it needs to be mournful. And it really takes you through the story in a pretty magnificent way. I am not familiar at all with the Tales series. I'm when I got to GameCube, my my interest shifted more so to uh, nostalgia. I think I was uh, I had acquired the Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask disc, and so they had like the Master Quest, which is a twist on Ocarina of Time. So I was right back into that. Mario was just coming out with uh, Paper Mario, so I was getting into that as well. And I was thinking when I had the GameCube, I was around that time when I was in university, so I was thinking of more group games. So of course, Smash comes into play, and we had Mario Golf, we were playing that a ton, and a buddy had a PlayStation. I think that's where I started to lose touch with video games, just because we were doing more group activities. So RP RPGs didn't come back into my life until much later, so it's interesting that there was such a, a solid one, obviously for plot and story and musically, on the GameCube that just completely missed me. Yeah, I mean, kind of like I know I need to check out Chrono Trigger just because of the historicness and like sort of the epicness of that gameplay from everybody I've ever heard talk about that game. I would say Tales of Symphony is, you know, in the Tales series in general, because it covers different consoles too but like yeah it's something you should spend some time with nice. especially if you still have a gamecube around yeah 
I missed GameCube completely. Oh. Say, like, I know, it kind of makes me a little sad because it came out in 2001. I was at university. I That's why you should have had one. <laughs> I know. But at that time, I just, uh, yeah, it just, I was also, incidentally, and this is, like, not an excuse, but I was also coming out at that time. So, like, my mental energies were all over the place. And I remember, wa- like, really wanting a GameCube, but I also remember it being a little bit of a miss. Like, it was very, it wasn't as popular as the N64, so I definitely remember it kind of missing it a little bit. But hearing you speak about it so passionately uh i can't help but like want to check it out i don't know if i'm gonna be like i again i i don't think i've ever played a gamecube game i'm gonna be getting a switch or i'm hoping to get a new switch and i have the um the three super mario 3d Mm all-stars i got that game and i've been playing mario 64 but it has mario sunshine um so uh i'm definitely going to give the tales of symphonia soundtrack a listen to because i want to see what all this love is about I think missing the GameCube in 2001 or right around that time is completely understandable. I mean, we have some pretty heavy hitters of consoles coming out at that time with Xbox and PlayStation. I mean, PlayStation 1 is released right around the time uh, that I was getting into the later years of my uh, high school, getting into early years of uh, university. So I think they tried something different, which Nintendo always does. They try to do something different with their medium and with their consoles. They are definitely more of the kid-friendly ones i think it's a great console but it's just not as as huge as say what they'll eventually come out with later on down the line which is the wii which is like the the biggest selling or one of the biggest selling of all time i guess i never got lost in sort of the the commercial success of each console that i ended up getting because for me the gamecube was kind of everything and it was kind of everything to like the guys that i was hanging out with in college too i spent hours upon hours of after classes, before homework, spent uh, playing Smash Brothers uh, Melee with my roommates. That's all we did. We that's I mean that's you know they'd grab their weed. I'd if I had alcohol or whatever around, I'd have some of that. We would be playing Smash Brothers for hours until we actually had to you know force ourselves to do the things that we had to do to make sure we like you know stayed on top of our classes. So you know the GameCube in our our apartment was almost always on in some shape or form because not everybody had to do stuff at the exact same time. Now, I will voice my frustration at Nintendo for being different with those little stupid discs at a time when everybody else had the much larger CD or DVD-like disc that they were using. But that aside, though, I mean, it loaded pretty well. It was a pretty powerful little device, especially compared to what N64 was before it. And it To me, it was great and it had some really epic games that, with that being sort of my first real foray into RPGs as I can remember, it just was a great system to play it on because it had a really crisp look compared to what would have been possible on the N64 or what would have been possible on like handhelds at the time. And I just, I really, I appreciated everything about that, including the music. Mm -hmm. Um, 
One of the other things we should mention in regards to the GameCube, I've actually got the timelines a little bit mixed up. Um, PlayStation had been out for a while. It was PlayStation 2, and um, I can't remember who... It may have been Kathy doing it on History of the 90s and or uh, Retronauts, but they talked about how the success of the PlayStation 2 is because it was a built-in DVD player, which at the time when those were being released were still like two, three, four hundred dollars just on their own. So if you get a gaming system that has a built-in DVD player, and that's kind of what Sony's plan was, they, they lost money on the DVD player sales, but they gained it by selling out PlayStation 2, which I do believe is the number one selling console. And when you've got GameCube trying to do the same thing at the same time, and you didn't have that functionality with their system, I mean, it's extremely difficult to go against the juggernaut that had already seen huge successes with PlayStation. And now they've got this built-in additional functionality where it's not only just video game players who are buying the system, it's also just standard, like regular people who need that DVD player to hook up to their system as well. But at least to GameCube's credit, it was capable of playing Game Boy games. They did make that happen oh, at yes, some point, and that was compatible. pretty awesome. I do remember that, for sure. And even now, the cult of GameCube is huge online. Like, there is a strong, devoted generation of people who, like yourself, Jason, that was, like, their Nintendo experience. And so I even love hearing it online when people discuss GameCube and be like, it's the best, you know, that's my game system. I'm like, oh, makes me a little sad and jealous. I never got to do that. Never got to love GameCube like that. Yeah, I'm sad and like that you guys didn't have the SNES because that is like the the system for me. But I digress. We will chat about that some other time. But let me get into one of my selections here. Um, so we're gonna drift away from Nintendo for a period of time just because I I wanted to mix it up in regards to uh, where I was coming at musically for this podcast and this specific episode. Uh, I was over in Japan for a period of time and my roommate Andrew had purchased an Xbox 360 and one of the first games that I experienced on that was uh, Elder Scrolls Oblivion and we're talking about the most open world of open world games and a game where you can sink in hundreds of hours and still not accomplish the first few tasks of the main quest you get into side quests and hundreds of things that you can experience and all of these different areas to explore and just an immersive fantasy world that bethesda uh, has put out there and bethesda has been hugely successful with these open world games of course with the elder scroll series with oblivion and skyrim going into fallout uh, they do such a great job of just immersing you in that world and for me this was now my return to two video games for a long period of time through university i just lost touch with playing video games i would go back home during my summers from university i would work i would do other things hang out with people hang out with friends that i hadn't seen and i just didn't play games i didn't have any consoles whatsoever at that point uh so when i went over to japan right after university and seeing this game it reignited interest in me to play again and the Elder Scrolls, specifically Oblivion, Oblivion I reference as kind of being the video game version of what I would imagine when playing games way back in the day via Nintendo or Super Nintendo. When I'm playing Zelda, like even the original Zelda or Zelda 2, I mean, you've got that really top-down perspective, minimal colors, minimal music, but... I'm picturing in my head this more expansive world and this this larger expanse of, of stuff happening. That's what Oblivion is, and that's what it was when I first experienced it. To be able to put it into such a beautiful, visual, uh, aesthetically pleasing way and make it action-packed and interesting and immersive. I think the world of Oblivion, the music is 
amazing. The music is very movie-like in regards to how orchestrated it is, how expansive, how swelling. It's a full orchestra, and it's one of those things, again, you can just put on and listen to constantly, and it kind of is that running soundtrack of your character's life in the game. can't go on with talking about Oblivion without uh, addressing the composer Jeremy Soule and the, the problematic individual that he is. I mean, he has been accused of uh, horrible sexual misconduct and sexual atrocities to two women uh, to date. And uh, we don't condone anything like this. Uh, we are with the accusers. Um, what we're Talking specifically here is just about the score that has been provided. I want to make sure that we reference it and that we're, we're with the survivors and we hope that everything gets brought out and they receive what they receive um, in the positive for them. But I want to address that with Jeremy Soule as the, con uh, the composer for Oblivion because I, I don't want it left behind. But the score is, is amazing. It is so expansive, so uh, majestic. It's uh, haunting. It's everything that you want, even just from wandering around the world. Um, it's peaceful and melodic and has all of the sounds of the world with it. And I really do appreciate what, what Oblivion was able to put out there. Same with Skyrim. Skyrim did the exact same, but even more so. Um, they were given, obviously, it's a, a later generation. Oblivion was released in 2006, but it still holds up. And I think the music of that video game is just unbelievable. Well, the only thing I think I can contribute to that is, so I have Elder Scrolls, Skyrim or whatever, and I had every intent of, and also a really fancy uh, sculpture that came with a deluxe edition of that. And I had every intention of playing it because it's like the one other console that I have that like I did play for a hot minute before I sort of stopped. I can sort of say that I didn't spend enough time to fully appreciate everything about that soundtrack, but I can sort of see how, you know, you would get pulled into something like that. I, again, have no connection to uh, Elder Scrolls. Yeah, it's outside of my realm of video game possibilities. But I am glad that you did bring up the discussion about Jeremy, because I think that is important. I didn't know about any of the accusations. I had no idea. So when you had written that in the production document, I was like, kudos to you. I think that's an important part of the conversation. It's so hard when our uh, preferred artists end up showing their true selves and it really does make the case for, do you separate the artist from the art? I think there are times when you can, and I think there are times when it's all burst based in personal context. So uh, just reading about what Jeremy has done, and not just the two women have come forward, but just his general approach to making music sounds really destructive, and it sounds very toxic, and it sounds like it's very unbalanced with its nature. So it is sad that uh, he has chosen that, way to express himself but i mean it's an important part of the conversation when you have something that is so meaningful to you and you know it, there's no easy answer to that i think that's what i've really come to is that again as a huge harry potter nerd i am i absolutely love the books i love the series i love everything about that story jk rowling is a transphobic mean spirited person who does not deserve money but 
has now created one of the most engaging worlds. Um, and to come back to your point earlier, I think what really is important for me to talk about these things is that he wasn't the only one who did this. And just because his story is toxic and negative and aggressive and mean and awful doesn't mean that the work of other people involved should get automatically discredited and thrown away. And I think that's what really for me it comes down to is that you can still enjoy something because it wasn't just Jeremy that did this. Everyone played instruments. Everyone participated in that. So I think there is a danger in completely throwing away something that based on somebody's behavior because other people were involved in that. So I agree with you. I stand with survivors. Anyway, that's what I'm going to contribute to this conversation because I don't know the music. <laughs> I think what I can add here is that, man, this is a really complicated... I, I didn't know that about uh, this Jeremy Soule person. But this sort of thing comes up again and again and again in music and really pretty much any sort of popular sort of genre. And, you know, the answer is that all of these things are the individual, right? Like they were brilliant, but they were also screwed up, right? Like it's it's not necessarily either or, it's like all of the above. For me, there are lines, right? Like there, it's sometimes there are things that make you cringe about an individual in their private life that, you know, it's like, okay, this sucks, but their music is still brilliant. And I'll just not focus on the parts of their life that I don't necessarily agree with. And there are other artists that, yeah, that, that doesn't become really possible anymore. I don't know what that line is. And I think for every individual, especially amongst our listeners, that line will be different. But I do think it's important to acknowledge, you know, these pretty monumental flaws in some of the artists that we really appreciate their work of. Um, Yeah, I I think that's what I have to contribute Mm -hmm. to this particular conversation. What we're seeing is that there are some pretty heavy conversations for this podcast to have, and I'm glad that we're having it. I mean, I wasn't going to address Oblivion without talking about what Soul has done. Both of you have spoken extremely well about the topic, so I appreciate your your candor and your honesty when we address something that is problematic like this. Well, both of you didn't have much of a connection uh, to uh, Oblivion, I think... What Anthony is going to talk about next, we all have a direct connection to, so I'll toss it over to him, and I think we'll get into a really great conversation here. Yeah, I had no idea that Super Mario Brothers 2 was so hot with you guys as well. Like, I really thought it was, and again, it is a little bit of a, it's not one of the more well-known games, like I think Super Mario and Super Mario 3 tend to be a lot of cultural touchstone points for many people who grew up with the NES. So when I, uh, you know, put on Super Mario Brothers 2 and Jason was like, no, that's what I was going to talk about. And I'm like, get out, really? So I think what I want to do is I want to first, Jason, I want to hear about your Super Mario Brothers story. So I let me start out by saying that, you know, we, we had this conversation about what direction we were going to take with this episode. And like I mentioned to you all via text message, it was kind of, it was difficult to figure out what in the world to rank. You know, it did help that most of my experience with video games were with Nintendo assets over the last, you know, 30 so years. But it's still, there's so many games I've played. It's like, well, what what do I promote? The one thing that I think made Super Mario Brothers 2 stand out so much for me, for what I knew about Mario, I mean, you know, from like Super Mario Brothers 
to Mario Brothers to just sort of like his use in like Donkey Kong and whatnot. Super Mario Brothers 2 was a pretty radical departure. I mean, mind you, Super Mario Brothers 3 didn't exist yet. It was a radical departure from anything I had seen before and really any other game I had played. The the graphics were fresh, the way Mario operated and Pals, Mario and Pals, because, you know, it introduced mechanics for some of the other popular characters that still persist in some of these other games to this day. But, you know, the whole notion of plucking and chucking vegetables at enemies was like, what is this? And like, I, you know, I guess it's sort of like a early teen appreciating this. I'm like, well, okay, well, I'm not sure what the message is here, but I can kind of relate to it because it's like, I'm not you know, vegetables aren't exactly my favorite thing. And the fact that, you know, I can kill enemies with vegetables proves what I thought about vegetables all along, that they're, you know, tools of my parents to sort of corrupt (laughs) my existence, right? But no, I mean, you know, all jokes aside, I resonated with everything about that game. Like every aspect of that game was pretty awesome to me. And the music It's one of those things where I may not know the track names of all the individual songs that are used in Super Mario Brothers 2, but I do very much remember almost all the songs as they relate to the different parts of the game. From the startup scream to the to the the roulette screen where you're trying to get like you know, I mean extra lives or uh, you know, to the the world. I mean like each world had its own theme and they were really unique from each other battles like you know the the first time you encounter birdo and like the music gets all dramatic and it's like you know and then the the sound of like birdo spitting eggs at you and it's like all of that is just like it makes for a really intense game and then i i mean Okay, the game is old enough that it's maybe not spoilers at this point, but when uh, the game no, en- ends, it's a it, it's a dream. It's a dream. <laughs> but the music that's playing when Mario's in bed is like it, it it kind of just put like sort of the cap on this entire experience of a game and it was pretty awesome to me. Like I think I remember when I finally finished that game and beat Wart that I was just kind of like, wow, this music is, at the end is awesome like i i I dig it i don't want to hit start so like this ends right away just that whole experience to me was pretty epic and it's you know it was a single player game so Like, I don't have that experience of sharing that with anybody else. It was something that was totally me, along with, you know, my little tiny TV and my uh, NES. So, yeah, it it holds a special place in my heart for sure. 
you guys had a real hard time spoiling a 32-year-old video game. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, I, you know, it, it. I mean, that realization at the end that it was all a dream, though, was pretty fantastic. I mean... It, agreed. It was a great reveal. Yeah. And it definitely left me with that, what? But I definitely being like, no, that makes sense. Like, yeah. Because, again, vegetables are the devil. they can take out any number of shy guys so there are a ton of podcasts that have dealt with the origins of super mario brothers 2 and how that got into into development i mean obviously you're trying to follow up the biggest video game console home console hit of the 80s or of all time i mean if we look at what super mario brothers has done for video game history i mean it's it's completely understandable that the follow-up has got to be something absolutely brilliant but uh, we won't get into the the history of that game because there's a ton of of information and how it's not Super Mario Brothers two as a game. It's something completely different. And but um, the one thing I want to highlight because of the podcast that we're on is we are now getting into the heavy hitters. This is a Koji Kondo mm. joint. I mean, this is an mm. unbelievable um, composer and creator of music and uh, sound design for Nintendo that has shaped all of our lives i mean us three as nintendo kids and video games moving forward i mean the list of music that this individual has dealt with i mean we're talking all the super mario brothers games for the nintendo we're talking legend of zelda games from a link to the past to ocarina of time to majora's mask super mario sunshine wind waker twilight princess getting into mario galaxy i mean it is he is the heavy hitter when it comes to video game music at nintendo and yeah the the music in this game i mean we can we've sang along with the tunes here either in our head or or outwardly in this podcast i mean it's just fantastic but i'm gonna kick it back over to anthony to go through why super mario brothers 2 is on your list i think you guys really said a lot of uh things that i also experienced and agree with is it just is such a monumental and memorable score that it stands alone from the first mario to come back to my point earlier sequels to me can work so well and i think they work well because you take what works in the first one and you add to it And because this is technically a third, (laughs) if we're going to go for the history of it, with the Lost Levels being the real Super Mario 2, and what would be released in North America as Super Mario 2 was actually a third installment in the series. But I think the jump that it does, and when you first start out, you're, you're falling. And so the fact that instead of the scrolling on the bottom, you're now scrolling down instantly catches me. And again, that music is so paired with that as it's falling and you just automatically set the tone that this is its own entity. Super Mario Brothers exists and you know that, but this is what it is now. And I think that for me really sets the tone for where Nintendo went is that they really take what they you know and they change it a little bit to make it a little bit different to make it more exciting and to challenge you in a different way and i think even koji kondo when he made the first mario brothers theme it's so iconic but he takes that and he transforms it and he does more with it in the second one and he expands it and now all of a sudden you have these characters that uh have their own sounds but they're part of the level and how you're uh, progressing in the level is you know carry the music is carrying you through the progression of that level and i think there's different ways in which he really 
brings forth the music as a character on its own. And I think there are so many memorable music cues in this game that I will 100% put this on the background when I'm listening, when I'm working, when I'm just enjoying. And it's hard because my partner Salem doesn't particularly like 8-bit music. It's very jarring to him. He's just like, mm, it's not my jam. And I was like, fair dinkum. So I always have to like sometimes monitor my levels <laughs> because I'll put this on just at any level and just listen to it like i really enjoy the progression of it i enjoy the narrative of it and i think the game obviously which is you know so important to you both when i first got my nes i had already played mario a lot and i knew all the levels i knew how to get through them so it was not a challenge when i got it i still loved playing it but it wasn't really like "Mm, okay i've done that so super mario brothers 2 was the first game that i actually beat all the way to the end on my own and that was a big step for me video game wise it gave me a confidence that uh, i did want to see more about this genre and this specific character the universe so yeah i will rant and rave about super mario brothers 2 and i'm really glad you guys got into it too because i think i've said in the past i really enjoy cult things things are a little weird things are a little off and even though we're talking about a video game with like a mushroom kingdom, I still feel like this, the second one has this weird energy to it. Oh, it absolutely does. It has that dreamlike quality of weird things happening and you, you know, throwing the potion and then going into further into a different world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if you think about that, that's Inception right there. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. Uh, like, he's going into another dirty dream and things are slowed down there. And anyway, let's... I don't want to go too much into it. But, uh, yeah, it's, like, obviously a really popular, fun game. And I think that's the thing for me is I forget how popular it is. It was huge. Yeah, like it's, it it's, was... You don't think about Super Mario Brothers 2 as being as big as it was. But, I mean, it was the huge North American follow-up to the biggest video game i mean i think but i also understand why you would think that way because it is so different it is so weird i mean you're throwing bombs at a massive mouse the evil bad guy at the end is named wart and he's like there's a Mm. machine that's throwing fruit and bombs at you and and uh there is the introduction of some staples yes uh in the mario universe so this is the first uh appearance of shy guys of Babombs. So the, of I think that's also Yeah. And um I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but and I distinctly remember reading it in the player's guide when I got it, but uh there is online fandom that acknowledges that Birdo is trans. Oh. Because in the description of the first of the game in the book, they use the pronoun he that he dresses like a she. And I've I've read it online, and I don't have it available now, but it actually frames him as a trans person. I mean, I might be reading a lot into this, but the idea is that his pronouns and his stories actually present him as a female when he kind of biologically is a male. You go, so, Nintendo. Uh, yeah, I, I it's like I like I encourage people to look into it. It is definitely within the canon, if you will. I don't know how pro-LGBT it is and how official it is, but that for me is also, I think about that a lot. Repre- queer representation, especially in video games, is like few and far between. Mm-hmm. So when we have characters that we see on screen that do represent part of you know our realities in our lives, then I think I get so excited about that. As so, it should be. We're going heavy in this episode. It's good. 
<laughs> we're talking here. This is this is what we're all about. So I think that was a really fantastic conversation of just our origin stories when it comes to video games and some of the music and the games that uh, we really appreciate from our youth and still resonate to this day. We've also had some really fantastic conversations about some really serious topics that I think do manifest itself within the video game music industry and within the kind of music industry in general. I think that'll give us a lot of interesting topics to talk about moving forward with whether we're going to talk about um, bootleg vinyl and the video game scope or if we're going to talk about significant um, sexual misconduct issues when it's a very male-oriented industry. Obviously, we always want to be acknowledging where there is LGBTQ plus um, representation in video games. I think that's fantastic. The the Birdo conversation that we just had, it's... This podcast is definitely taking its twists and turns more so than just what we initially thought it was going to be, this fun, lighthearted conversation with three people who wanted to just talk about music. And I like the direction that we're going, and I want to continue these conversations. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave it there. We will bring up uh, additional video games. We had lists upon lists of things that we could talk about here. So we're going to stop it here today. We're going to come back to this topic at a later point, uh, maybe in our next episode, and we'll continue the conversation about those video game sound soundtracks and uh, the impacts it had on our youth. So I think we'll just hold it there. And I thank you both for the conversation today. Of course, we want to hear from our listeners. We want you to interact with us and tell us about the video game soundtracks and scores that really affected you when you were young, all the way up to your uh, present day situation. We want to hear in any way, shape or form, just how video game music has really impacted uh, your lives and your listening enjoyment or not enjoyment. Of course, you can reach out to us via our Gmail account, even the score podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your letters and emails. You can also find us on our social media accounts. Uh, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at EvenTheScorePod. And we definitely encourage you to interact with us there. We have a really active Twitter account, a really great Instagram feed. Find us, uh, like our posts, share uh, some of your thoughts and comments, and go ahead and, uh, of course, share whatever content we're putting out there. When it comes to our episodes, you can find us on any of your podcast apps of choice. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, you can find us on Podchaser. And of course, course, we have some uh, great links in our Twitter account. So go ahead and find us on whatever podcast app you're using. Rate and review our episodes. Give us some five stars if you're really enjoying the conversation that we're having. Uh, I will just thank Anthony and Jason for your, uh, your candor in this fantastic episode. Thank you again to you both. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. This is, as always, awesome. And thank you again to the listeners. We really appreciate your feedback. We want to hear from you. Go ahead and reach out to us and just continue to, to listen moving forward. So this is the Even the Score podcast. We'll catch you next time.